Do you want to stop yelling and have your child listen to? Well, I have exciting news for you. If you're hearing this right now, it means that the doors to mindful parenting are open at mindfulparentingcourse.com. This only happens for a limited time, and it may be perfect for you if you want to be that patient, calm parent, but you're afraid of being walked all over, you're losing it, and you want to be that steady, peaceful parent, you don't have a cohesive method, and you take in bad advice like just count to one, two, three. Mindful parenting is an evidence-based system that not only teaches you how to calm your reactivity, but offers you a ton of personal guidance. A lot of other parenting coaches talk about the best way to respond to your child, but guess what? They don't walk you through the research-proven practices that it really takes to create changes that actually last. Mindful parenting teaches you the specific steps to create cooperative, loving relationships for life. In Mindful Parenting, you can learn how to stay calm, even if you find yourself shouting hourly now. Be present for your child no matter what they're going through. Resolve conflicts easily without yelling or taking away the iPad. Set limits without your child resenting you for days afterward. And build trust between you and your child so that you avoid misery in the teen years. The doors are open now at mindfulparentingcourse.com. Unlike other programs in Mindful Parenting, we offer one-on-one coaching to every member and weekly drop-in coaching sessions. Don't wait anymore. You and your kids are worth leveling up. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com and join now before the doors close again. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com. I'll see you there. If you think about what is truly meaningful to you in your life, you realize that actually um, it's the relationships between things that actually cause that meaning. And the more meaningful something is, the more it kind of impacts all the different aspects of your life. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode number 354. Today we're talking about the power of meaning with Jeremy Lent. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have, and when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of Mindful Parenting, and I'm the author of the best-selling book, Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Hey, listen, if you haven't done so yet, please hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And if you've ever gotten any value from this podcast, please do me a favor. Go over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review. It just helps the podcast grow more. It just takes 30 seconds. I greatly appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. And listen, you have done so much already. Dear listener, we are over 2 million downloads now. Oh, clapping sounds. (laughs) It's amazing. We're over 2 million downloads for the Mindful Mama podcast and I want to thank you for that. So thank you, thank you, especially if you've left a rating and review. It means so much. 
In just a moment, I'm going to be sitting down with Jeremy Lent, author and speaker whose work investigates the underlying causes of our civilization's existential crisis and explores pathways toward a life-affirming future. He's the author of this amazing book that my husband shared with me called The Web of Meaning. And this is a very meaningful conversation. We're really going to go deep today. We're going to talk about what makes life meaningful, how meaning comes from connection and how our culture is really this culture of separation. And so how to then we find meaning. We're also going to talk about our kids, listen for takeaways on you know how to talk to our kids about the climate crisis, how cooperation may take a bigger role in evolution than competition, which is so cool. And this big, beautiful questions about how to make life meaningful. I think this is so important to explore as you know we can sucked into the news and the tragedies of the world. I've been really feeling that here in the United States with our gun danger crisis, mass shooting crisis, and I will be listening to this conversation again with you because this idea of like, this is what we do, right? We make life meaningful. We lean into meaning. We dance. We lean into love when things are hard like this, right? This is when we need to do this. So I hope this episode helps you look at your life with more poignancy and meaning this week. Now you can go over to our YouTube channel and we have it in chapters. So it's a great way to share little clips from the episode if you want to. That's a great thing to do. Just go to YouTube, search for mindfulmamamentor.com. That's a great thing to do. And without any ado, let's do this. Join me at the table as I talk to Jeremy Lent. Your book, The Web of Meaning, is this big synthesis of a lot of ideas, right? And you weave them together. So I'm just for the sake of the listener, because I've read it, but how do you describe <laughs> when people ask you the question about what your book is about? What? How do you answer that question? Yeah, right. Well, um, basically what I think the book is about is recognizing how so many of the assumptions that we make about how we make sense of the world that we just received from our dominant worldview, so many of those assumptions are wrong. And we don't realize that um, until we start to explore them more. And once we see how some of these basic assumptions, what we call our worldview are wrong, um, what the book does, it shows how there is a different way of making sense of our lives and of reality, a way that is based much more on interconnectedness. And it explores the profound implications of looking starting to look at the world from that different way of understanding things. That's, like, that's beautifully said. I love that. And you'd also describe this kind of conversation that we all seem to have, you know, where, and I, the, where, you know, you may have some hopeful vision for the future and, and you have some you know, crotchety old family member says, well, let me tell you how the world is and everybody's selfish and it all works because we're all selfish. And you just kind of feel like, I mean, at least me, I kind of feel like, oh, and occasionally I I don't really know what to say to that. And I'm just like, it leaves me feeling icky. And but you, you talk about how that, those are one of those dominant worldviews that we really can call into question that has, that doesn't, there's some, some strong arguments against that. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in fact, the, the book begins with, with just this kind of scenario. I, I call it the conversation, um, the conversation with a capital C kind of thing, because it's one, just like you say, Hunter, that we've all had at different points in time, and maybe we have it within ourselves too. And it sort of, it goes like this. I, I call this character, this crotchety old uncle, Uncle Bob, you know, and it's like a tea party and someone's saying, oh, we can make the world so much of a better place. And Uncle Bob comes around and says, let me tell you something. When you've been around the block a few times like I have, you'll learn, you know, just like you're saying, basically forget about all these ideas. We're all selfish. And, and that's how, why our, our system works so well, capitalism, because it just basically takes everyone's selfishness and it makes it um, work most effectively. So it's the best system we've got. And, um, you know, we had used technology um, to make progress and, and things are so much better than they used to be. So, yeah, just, you know, just we, we've got problems like climate change. We'll fix it. Don't you worry with technology. Um, and that's just the way the world is. So all the air goes out of these ideas and you go, oh, OK, well, yeah, I don't really have much to say to that. And that's so powerful because it's not just some crotchety old uncle who says that, but basically every time we turn on the news, every time we get um, we just watch an ad on TV every time we sort of look at some some sort of thing coming us at us from um, from the internet or whatever. Even though those are not explicit statements that are made, they underlie pretty much every message we receive, and that's why it's so hard to kind of argue against those ideas. But you have wonderful arguments against this, <laughs> and I love. Um... I love what you the way you talk about this idea of cooperation versus um, selfishness. And we all mm. know the idea that, you know, uh, survival of the fittest and that genes are, you know, that, you know, we've heard the idea of the selfish gene and that everybody's just sort of trying for survival. And that is true to some extent, but there's also a lot of great argument for actually uh, quite innate cooperation, like even at a cellular level, at a bi yeah. at a biological level, in, in in the in the plant world, in the animal world, in humans. Talk to us about some of those places yeah. where you see that. Right, and that that's a, a key theme in the book. And uh, you know, pretty much all of us have have come across this notion of the selfish gene, and that was an idea that got put out by a biologist, Richard Dawkins, way back in the 70s. And he wrote this book called The Selfish Gene. And it got so, it's, it seemed like such a simple and powerful idea that now it's sort of, we just take that, that must be science, right? That's, that's what science tells us. That's what evolution is all about, that selfish genes dominate everything. Evolution is just as productive, outcompeting each other. And, and this is what's so fascinating is that all for decades now in biology, what people have uncovered is that the opposite is true. It's not that there's no selfishness in nature, but it turns out that actually evolution is the big steps in evolution. Like all the way, if you look back over billions of years from when there were just very simple cells to complex cells to multicellular organisms and then animals and ultimately humans, every one of these big steps in evolution took place not through one set of genes saying, I'm going to be better than you, I'm going to outcompete you, but the opposite by actually two different entities looking at being specializing in something and saying, oh, if we work together, 
in what's called mutually beneficial symbiosis. If we work together symbiotically with this other entity, we can actually do something that is good for each of us. So rather than taking advantage of, it's like each one goes, I can offer you this specialty, you offer me that, and we, we can figure out how to do something that's benefit for all of us. Like, so it's not a zero sum game. And that's what evolutionary biologists now recognize is what led to this beautiful abundance and complexity of life on earth. Like there was one biologist who said life um, did what it did. Not It took over the world, not by competition, but by networking. So that's a very powerful, different way of understanding things, which is scientifically valid, but overturns this whole notion that it's all about competition. It's so fascinating to think that it's even down at the cellular, cellular level, but mm. to like make it more... Um, tangible for people are there can you give us some examples like in the animal world or the plant kingdom where that's yeah happening? sure well you know the the simple thing to do is like imagine you're just kind of walking in a forest you know just and it looks like um this, this is just what we used to is the trees and everything else what is going on all around you is exactly this kind of mutual symbiosis so for starters the trees and um, the plants are the ones that actually take the energy from the sun and they turn it into and their leaves and everything they make. And that offers nutrition for the animals. But when they give nutrition to the animals, it's not at their expense. Uh, they actually use the animals then to put their seeds elsewhere so the plants themselves can propagate. And then um, when animals and the um, and the plants begin to die, and they it's like we just think of it as turning into rot. But what happens is, and there's this incredible other part of life, which is the fungal um, sort of network in life. And there's this um, networks of fungus that take all the dead matter and they turn it into nutrition back to the plants again. So there's like beautiful, like a circular economy. And then the trees actually are so connected with this mycorrhizal fungal network is called this under the ground. They've even learned to work with that network to create their own um, their own kind of internet, if you will. It's actually been called the wood wide web um, <laughs> because what, uh, what biologists now understand is that a whole forest, the trees aren't trying to compete with each other. They're actually working together in a community. There's even like big old mother trees um, which have been around for maybe hundreds of years that actually used this, this the actual network of fungus underground to send nutrition to other trees elsewhere, that younger ones in the edge of the forest who are starting out. And they even signal to each other. So if there's a predator munching on some leaves in one place, um, it'll, the, the plant will actually put out signals to the other trees and they'll start working out their insect repellent basically to protect themselves. There's all this kind of stuff going on around us all the time. I want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out, especially if you ever deal with any school system, which you probably do. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And this season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and busts common myths about special education. 
So I checked out the episode on the difference between IEPs and 504 plans because my daughter Maggie uses a 504 plan and it was really, really helpful. It went over all the differences, which one's better, how to get them, different myths and what your rights are, all kinds of different things that you should understand if your child may need extra help in education through an IEP or a 504 plan. The tone is super helpful, friendly, and smart. I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains. We are supported by Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math Mysteries About True Histories. It's a weekly show full of time travel puzzles, hidden equations, history, and lots of laughs. I highly recommend this podcast. It's really wonderful, especially if you have kids like around like six plus, but it can totally be enjoyed by the whole family. So I listened to the episode, The Pirate Queen, and you're just dropped right in the middle of the action. People are fighting. There's sword fight. And then these kids, they've gone on a time travel mission and they have to solve problems in the midst of it. And it really just like exemplifies everything we support here at Mindful Parenting. You know, kids who are adventurous, doing things on the world, they're capable. And then they do things like they have to do math, they have to think critically, they have to code break and pattern solving and all this great stuff. Beyond just the Pirate Queen episode, which I highly recommend, episodes transport listeners to moments in history, too, like Pythagoras, Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. So jump in with your family. Follow the adventures of Max and Molly on an adventure through time with puzzles and hidden equations and laughs. And it really does make learning really fun and really cool. Perfect for ages six and up. New episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids, and you can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. That's Mysteries About True Histories. It's so fascinating, and I love this idea of interconnection and cooperation being this, you know, equally as potent driving force as competition, because competition is just kind of like shoved down our throat. And it's, and, but it's so interesting because dear listener, like this book is about so much more than that. You might think this is a biology treatise, but it's really not. It's about, um, meaning in, in so many different ways. And, but to kind of stay on, to stay on the idea of, of sort of our, our biology or our environment and things like that, you have some heartbreaking chapters about what's happening to the mm-hmm. earth as far as like the, the number of it, you know, species that are dying and climate crisis and things like that. This is a podcast. We talk about parenting. Do you have any ideas about how we could talk to mm-hmm. kids about these intense issues about climate change we don't want them to despair but we want about the future but we want them to be real but then also like the whole idea that you know do we want them to be acclimated to you know this future that's like less than as biologically than the past might have been do you have any idea no i think i think that what you're asking is a really important question um, and I think there's a, to a certain level, there is a sort of level of age appropriateness, um, mm-hmm. because obviously at a very young age, 
uh, making kids too much aware of the disastrous paths that we're on right now might be just more than a very little kid can handle. But I think taking it at that sort of level of what's age appropriate, I feel it's really important to actually be straight up with your kids once they begin to start inquiring about what's going on on these issues, because they'll find out about it anyway. And so it starts off on a trust issue, because if they find out about it from other people and then they bring it back to you as a parent, they've lost that sense of trust that you can really help them to direct, to like understand the world in a deeper way. And I think what is crucial is to not actually um, sort of hold the punches kind of thing about how desperate things are because they are and kids are growing up into a future. They have a right to recognize that this is a future that they may be having to face. But at the same time, to not hold out, as not give a sense of despair or a sense of inevitability about uh, disasters coming down the pike, because that's actually not the case. We don't need to despair. We don't need to feel that, um, I mean, certainly there's a, an inevitability that things are going to get worse in years to come. We can't avoid that. But it doesn't need to me that it's inevitable that we're going to hit some total catastrophe. Um, but what I think is crucial is let any child know, and this is true for ourselves as adults, um, to recognize that we can actually be part of the solution. And that doesn't mean that any one of us is going to be the, the great hero who's going to come and ride the white horse and turn everything around by ourselves. But we can actually tie into so many wonderful organizations around the world that are doing stuff to actually make a difference. And I've seen examples of kids and who got themselves inspired and then inspired others by just actually tapping into stuff that's going on in the community. You know, for a kid, it could be a simple thing about getting involved in recycling programs or um, just uh, doing doing things that are part of their local community. It doesn't have to be dealing with some of the bigger, more sort of horrendous political issues or whatever, but knowing that there is things that they can do is as crucial as understanding that there is a problem at the same time. Yeah, we need like an outlet for action. You know, we can't just feel helpless about it. And I guess that's true for all of us. I, my daughter, my 14-year-old daughter has been learning about the climate crisis for a number of years, but has recently feels very frustrated with the idea that you know, it goes back to that individualism idea like that, yeah. that all these companies have put like the onus on us to be able to right. as individuals to if we all do X, whereas really we need larger legislative change. That's because right. I shouldn't feel bad for flying to, yeah. in an airplane, you know, and, yeah. and uh, well, so it's you hard know, to she, kind of walk that line, I think. Exactly. I It, it is a matter of walking a line um, because she's right about that in the sense that and the studies that have been done that shown that it's the fossil fuel companies a few decades back who actually started these ideas about it's all the consumer's responsibility because they wanted to kind of shift the focus away from what they were doing. And so um, it, it was actually a very cynical and strategic uh, ploy on their part to get people to think, oh, I, it's my 
job as a consumer to be more responsible and it's my fault. And so that's actually something to really understand. We do need the systems change and our own individual changes in behavior are not going to be sufficient. And at the same time, I do think it's good to find the right place to navigate. I mean, there are some people in the environmental movement who have basically said, I'm not flying period zero and that's it. Um, and maybe yeah, for some people that might be a more practical uh, way to go. And for other people, including me, it's too difficult to go to that place. But I do feel it's reasonable when we look at our own individual choices to just kind of hold those spaces. And so, um, I mean, I'll tell you, just speaking speaking personally, um, I'm here in California. Um, my wife and I, actually a month from now, are going to be flying to Hawaii for a vacation. Um, so we, you know, I, I'm doing that, but I'm thinking long and hard about it. And I'm avoiding um, trying to like limit my uh, sort of big multi out, you know, um, long trips to ones where I feel as reasonable, you know? And so mm-hmm. um, each, each of us has a different version of reasonable. And I, I do feel that's something we have to hold. I don't think there is a magic bullet. There's a single answer that's right for everyone. But I think we both need to be aware that our actions do have implications and that um, each of us, what's interesting, and we live in such an interconnected world that each time one of us makes a decision to do something, people around us notice that and it affects how they uh, decide to do things. So there are studies that show that, for example, you know, people who go on a diet, people who don't even know them, two or three connections away from them, uh, the likelihood that they'll be dieting at some point around uh, that time will go up because these these have ripples of connections around us. So I don't think there's an easy answer, quite honestly, Um, but it's worth holding both of those things in our our hands at the same time. Well, to to shift gears very, it feels very radically in a, in a short conversation, but Mm. in your, in your book, it's not so radical, but you talk Mm. also about, and this is something we've talked about here before the idea of the self and you talk about the self versus I, um, Mm. I was wondering if you could talk about, (laughs) tell us what you mean by that and how is this idea of, how is this helpful? Yeah, sure. And this actually can be quite helpful, I think, especially when we're looking at our um, raising our kids and just how we are in um, those kind of family dynamics. Because in a way, um, what I talk about it is that actually um, the most important relationship in your life is not the one that you have with your spouse or your kid or um, your parent or whatever. It's the one you actually have with yourself. Um, and th- so it's a, um, there's a, a chapter I write about the relationship between I and myself. And that's a little of a mind blower when you first sit, talk about it. Well, well, what's this distinction? But actually a lot of what I explore in the book is that as humans, we do have a, a kind of like a split consciousness. Um, and recognizing that is the first way towards reharmonizing or integrating that split consciousness. And that the simplest way to get a sense of what I'm talking about is just to think of our normal speech when I'm talking to you um, about myself. And like, say say I'm, I'm talking to you and say, oh yeah, I met her yesterday. She gave me a warm smile. Um, and um, then I, I felt really um, bad about myself because I didn't respond appropriately. Or I might say, I'm in a, I'm, I'm, uh, 
was doing that job for a while, I finally left it. I'm so glad because um, I was torturing myself trying to uh, get mm-hmm. the deliverables on time. But now I feel so so much better about myself. I'm really proud of myself. So you know what I'm talking about. It's not like you. It's not like you, you suddenly say, "Oh, this guy's gone a little nuts and he's become <laughs> a split personality." You know what I'm saying. But there's an I in myself, right? I have a relationship with myself. I can be angry with myself. I can be. Um, I can torture myself. I can feel at one with myself. So who are these people going on? <laughs> and that's part of our human split consciousness. And so what I explore is that we can think of the the self as more like the sort of moment to moment uh, consciousness that we have. It's something that every animal has, this moment to moment sense of feeling hungry, angry, and feeling warm, cold, all those things. And it's actually pretty much how infants are when, as they, when they first like become into this world and feel what's going on. But and as you, human- you call this the animate consciousness, right? Yeah, exactly. I've mentioned this. I just, exactly. I was so, some talking to another podcast guest and I was like, it's the animate consciousness you're talking about. Yeah. And because I love that word. I think that makes right. so much sense because it's that, that bodily sensory moment to moment. Yeah. Yeah. There's that lovely um, Mary Oliver poem, which talks about to just learn to love the, the warm underbelly of mm. your being. And that's kind of like that animate consciousness. That's, mm-hmm. that's on moment to moment. And, and in fact, in meditation, when we're sitting there and we're observing um, that moment to moment arising of whatever happens, that's we're observing that kind of animate consciousness doing its thing. But then mm-hmm. in meditation, who's doing the observing? Yeah. And that's the I. So the I is like this thing, this um, something that develops in us as we get older, as we get to be um, sort of maybe five, six, seven, we begin to develop a sense of I. And then that I is like our sort of narrative of our lives. It's the thing that says, I can identify who I am. Like I'm a, I'm, I'm an author or um, I'm a, a right. I'm, I'm in the middle of something or my plan is to do this or that. It's like, I'm the one who looks at those selves and says, I should be more like this. So I, I will make judgments about myself or I will have plans for myself. And that I is one that can often lead to a harsh relationship with myself. So a lot of us sometimes experience difficulties in our own consciousness, a sense of harshness. We have voices saying, oh, I shouldn't be so stupid. Or, you know, I mean, almost almost all of us, right, have some kind of experience like that. That's the relationship between the I and the self that doesn't need to be like that. It can be more harmonized. And I, what's interesting is that we learn those as we're children. So when we grow up, if we have our parents or authority figures, and if we do something right or wrong and they come uh, they they tell us oh you're really you're a wonderful person because you achieved this then it might create my own eye to say oh i need to be a real achiever because that's the way i'm a good person or vice versa if you have a a strict authoritarian parent saying yeah you should never do that again and you know like you you get corporal punishment, or you get like a real sense of something bad, then you learn to internalize that. And then I start to tell myself, um, oh, I'm bad because I do this or that. So how we parent actually leads to the quality of that um, relationship between the I and the self that our children will grow into as they get older. And that's where parenting with 
love, like starting with unconditional love and, um, you know, uh, relating to Dan Siegel's work, who I know has been on this podcast a few times, they, that sense of integration, that recognition of differentiation, um, but and then merging together, like being one, but also being um, allowed to be separate, recognizing each of our parts has their part to play in the fullness of who we are. Those are the kinds of things that can lead to what I call a democracy of consciousness, like sort of allowing all the different parts of ourselves to feel fully alive and be heard. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask-Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. I like that idea of a democracy of our consciousness. I think lately I've been thinking about myself yeah, right. <laughs> as, yeah. as, as more like a, like a, like a, a multicellular organism. Like I am mm-hmm. an ant colony really. And that, and, and almost like the way, uh, you know, I, I don't know, like, and then in the smaller sense, like I'm a cell in the earth body too. Like I'm just one of these little cells that is gone and I've merged with another little cell and we've made right. some more little cells in the earth body, yeah. but also this sense of like, and in reading your book, I got that too, this sense of like, there's all these different parts of myself biologically, uh, you know, psychologically, I guess, you know, all this different in all, all in so many ways, it's like many different parts that come together and no wonder we have a, a strange relationship yeah, with right. ourselves sometimes. Right. Right. That's right. And a lot of what I actually look at in the book and explore is actually the incredible correspondences between the patterns that we see in the natural world around us and the patterns that are within us, which is not a surprise because of course we are 
nature. You know, we learn, we've learned to think of nature, you know, like the definition of nature, if you look it up in the dictionary or something, is like something that is separate from human, you know, the stuff that's out there. So there's humans over here and nature over there. And that's another of these fundamental mistakes that we have in our dominant worldview that we think is scientific, but is the exact opposite. In fact, what we are is nature. And each of us is like roughly 40 trillion cells in our own bodies. That is actually who we are. It's not like, oh, I have these cells. Those cells actually are me. And it's the way they interact with each other. Even every cell interacting with itself and interacting with, with all the other cells. And then the way I'm interacting with everything else around me, that's what actually creates who I am. And so a lot of what we explore in this book is this realization that our very identity doesn't end with my own body or my own being. It's not, and we're told in our dominant worldview again, that each of us is like these individuals. Mm -hmm. um, and if we um, uh, say so you follow um, Orthodox Christianity or whatever, we might believe that, um, you know, when we die, our individual soul you know, will go to heaven if we were good or can go to hell if you're bad or whatever. But it's all about you as an individual. And what the book actually explores is the realization that our very um, sense of identity is like, follows like these fractal patterns. Um, it's like, you know, fr fractal is a really fascinating idea. Something, um, some people might be familiar with this notion, but fractals are patterns that repeat themselves at different um, sort of scales in the world. So you can imagine like a fern leaf with a little pattern mm. and it gets bigger and bigger and then the whole fern. And we see actual fractal patterns everywhere in nature, like in lightning or in our actual neuronal connections or our lung um, bronchioles or um, basically anything that is natural or self-organized has these patterns that repeat at different scales. And our identity is really like that. And um, we have these um, these kind of entities within ourselves that become us. But our own identity itself is as part of family, as part of community, as part of humanity, and ultimately as part of all life on this earth. That's so interesting because one of the things I work on teaching is changing generational patterns, right? Like that's mm. something that's really a passion of mine is the taking some of the unhealthy patterns that we do just unconsciously repeat, right? We just repeat the patterns and it takes a lot of conscious effort and practice to shift those patterns because they are so innate to us. These, the, and you're talking about these sort of patterns that repeat. I'd never thought of like sort of the generational patterns in the same way. Yes. And I think that you're completely right. That's actually one of the most valuable things we can do is recognize how these patterns actually shift, um, not just kind of spatially out there, but through time. And so um, we can think of archetypes really mm -hmm. um, all the way back through in, in the earliest parts of human experience as being these patterns. I um, actually call them sort of patterns of consciousness um, really that um, move through one generation to the next. And they're always different. It's not like we're, they're fixed, but these core patterns retain an incredible amount of stability through time. Um, and to your point, um, the recognition of those patterns 
is the one of the first and most important steps to then being able to change them. And, and so I think that's that's the, the key thing. If you don't recognize that you have those patterns of behavior, you that you're you're stuck in them. You're basically imprisoned in whatever they are. But once you do recognize them, then what I believe is comes back to that relationship between the I and the self. It's like the I can recognize a pattern within the self, but then how we respond to that is crucial because if we respond to that by saying, that's a bad pattern, I've got to like, you know, break that apart and, um, and come up with something better that can lead to all kinds of difficult elements between I and the self. And the pattern ends up actually almost like as it gets sort of, as you try to break it apart, it can almost respond with even more force and be much harder to break apart. But approaching it with love and compassion enables you to actually then move on to shifting that pattern. It's as though you can sort of dissolve those patterns that are not so helpful, dissolve them with love rather than sort of break them down by trying to fix them sort of thing. But realizing, oh, this pattern, it came about because of things when I was a young child, things I was trying to do to um, make sense of the world, or it came about because of inputs I got from my parents or other authority figures. And, and then it was trying to be helpful, but then it got less helpful as time went on. But recognizing that and approaching it with love and compassion enables you then to then move on from that, not to um, try to get rid of it, but to actually allow it to be part of something bigger, a bigger identity that you can grow into. It becomes compost for a right. flower that will come. Exactly. That's, this is amazing, yeah. Jeremy, because that's in the mindful parenting course that I developed. Like in the second module, we we do work to sort of uncover our generational patterns, and then yeah. the third model is, module is all about self compassion. And so mm-hmm. it really, they are like so right there next yes. to each other. And you're saying that this is the way to dissolve this. I love right. this. Um, it's so like meaningful mm-hmm. to me. Well, speaking of meaningful, so you write that meaning is a function of connectedness. So tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, well, um, the book itself, the the title, right, is The Web of Meaning. Um, and the, the subtitle, Integrating Science and, and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. But that notion of the web of meaning is really crucial to me. Um, and in fact, my own um the my own sort of path to end up writing this book um, was about a, my own search for meaning. So I went through a, a part of my life when things like sort of fell apart for me, and I was kind of trying to understand what's going, to, what's truly meaningful as a path for me to um, pursue in my in my own life going forward. And this, what I found, is that actually we can understand meaning itself as a function of connectedness, of how everything relates to everything else. A lot of the time uh, in our life, again, because of what our dominant culture tells us, we think we're meant to find meaning as though it's some sort of point. Like, what's the point of doing something? As if there's some sort of goal or objective that we have to move towards, and that's where meaning arises. But then when you look at the world from this different way of like this profound interconnectedness of everything, you realize that the actual meaning that something has is not some separate thing, but it's how it relates to everything else. And it's even true if you think of 
as just looking up what a word means in the dictionary. You, you look up a word and it gives you other words that it relates to, you know, and, and so you sort of triangulate, oh, the meaning is like this and like that, and it's somewhere in between those two or whatever. But if you think about what is truly meaningful to you in your life, you realize that actually um, it's the relationships between things that actually cause that meaning. And the more meaningful something is, the more it kind of impacts all the different aspects of your life. And maybe again, in terms of relationships with other people, with other parts of life, with the past and the future. And when people feel a sense of meaninglessness um, and they feel uh, that that leads to a sense of depression, it leads to a sense of like an isolation, a separation from things. Mm. And what is so um, kind of frightening to discover really, but then it's enlivening because we realize we can do something about it is what our dominant culture is, is one of separation. So it's mm -hmm. as though everything we're told in our, our reality leads us to actually separating from each other and from the rest of life rather than finding meaning through that connection. I think you're right. I mean, I think that's something I, it's been so this can really driven home, I think, during the pandemic, this idea mm. of separating, obviously, right? Uh, uh, social distancing and and um, yeah. and isolation and and that that I think in some ways, it's like instead of the the frog in the pot of water that gets slowly hotter, we were all dumped into a boiling pot of water of isolation, <laughs> and we were just like. I mean, at least for me, I'm an extrovert and the, you know, things like this, like this podcast, like it give me so much meaning and the way you described it as like these small points of connection, like no wonder this gives me so much meaning you're giving, you're explaining it so purposely, but like the, as an extrovert, the idea of that isolation was so, um, so it hurt, you know, it was hard. It was yeah. really painful to, to, to do that. And, um, and yeah, I love this idea of the meaning as connectedness and that, that really does make so much sense. And it can be read in a lot of different ways. Like it can be read, you know, you, your book talks about things in a way of that, you know, like meaning arises and can be read by somebody who's atheistic in a really beautiful way and provide a mm -hmm. lot of like, meaning to that but i think it could also be read by somebody who is a you know a believer in a christian or believer in god and saying Absolutely. oh like look at this meaning and this the way that this is in everything and the way it's all interconnected yes. i mean it could be that That's meaning could be brought out from a lot of different viewpoints yes that that is completely right and and really the the book um doesn't ask anybody to say, oh, stop believing in this and believe in that. This is like some sort of new, um, uh, you know, some new answer to everything or whatever. What the book does is really is look at the different ways in which insights from all the great traditions around the world um, relate to each other and how they actually relate to modern science. Because this is one of the ways and another of these kind of mistakes of our dominant worldview that we just kind of think are, are true is we're led to believe that um, science and spirituality 
are separate from each other, um, either like enemies of each other um, and, uh, or else just meant to like live in separate domains. So oh, well, science looks at how things work and spirituality looks at meaning or um, a sense of, uh, yeah, of, of spirit or religion or something, and that's not scientific. And many people believe you're meant to keep these things separate. But I personally, I've come to see, and this is what the science actually shows us now, that that sense of separation is false. In fact, and when we look at what modern sciences show us, you can think of them as like sciences of connectivity, like um, they're, they've got names like systems theory that looks at, the, at things as complex systems or um, systems biology that looks at living entities as how they're connected up or complexity science that looks at just how the world is all these different um, complex ways of, of, um, of relating. All of these things show us that actually the connections between things oftentimes are more important than the things themselves. And these, these scientific approaches to things actually lead to a sense of spirituality. As a real, we can even understand spirituality itself as kind of focusing your attention on those connections between things rather than things themselves. And we begin to see that um, getting a sense of meaning arising from that connectivity, getting a sense of the a reverence for all of life and for the, the just the amazing miracle of the universe, truly religious feelings and sensations are actually founded on the best science. They're not anti-scientific at all. And that we begin to see the distinction just is made up. I love this. You're speaking my language because it, it's frustrating, like the sort of like the old reductionist science of like, mm. let's just like at this tiny piece and this tiny piece and separate it out from all the other things right. is really helpful in so many ways but it's right, also sure. cold and it just is like a little bit you know and it and and it does make more obviously it's more meaningful and it's like interconnected with everything you know i mean those yeah. are my favorite conversations right when we're like saying oh yes and this is this is how this is connected to this thing and this is how this is connected to that thing yeah um yeah. Exactly. And I imagine it is for you. Obviously, you're fascinated with patterns and connectedness as yeah. well. <laughs> yeah. But as you said it so well, Hunter, like that, that um, is actually reductionism um, that a lot of people think is science. And that's what, again, one of these kind of um, mistaken ways that uh, we generally told to understand things. And, but reductionism itself. Basically, like you say, it's a, it's a part of science that says we can understand things better and better by breaking it down into the smaller and smaller parts. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's a, a lot right about that. That was something that led to the scientific revolution hundreds of years ago. And it's that that led to so much of the incredible understanding we now have that you know, leads to the technology where you and I can speak to each other across thousands of miles and other people can get to um, hear us and be part of, of us. And, um, and it's like things like just simple things like the germ theory of disease and foundational things. We can be so grateful to reductionist science for what they've done, but they, it got to be so successful that over the years, and people began to think that reductionism doesn't just explain a lot of stuff about the universe, it explains everything about the universe. And it's the only way to make sense of the universe. Mm. That's the mistake that, um, that sort of got to be part of our mainstream culture. And so what the book shows 
is not that there's anything wrong with reductionism or reduction science, but it's like, yes, and in addition to those parts, by looking at the ways in which those parts connect, we can actually understand the world much better scientifically and also see how it relates to a sense of meaning, how we as humans relate to the rest of life, how um, each of us as individuals relate to our community um, and to all of humanity around us. And once we start to live in those relationships, everything actually becomes more meaningful. And it also leads to a different sense of well-being, a different sense of the quality of um, of our lived experience. I I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that the isolation that we're experiencing, not just from the pandemic, but from um, from our way of life, right, where we're all you know maybe always in a little room behind a screen yeah. or, or we're connecting with our friends by looking at a little box and <laughs> typing some words to them like this sort of way of life is isolating us right yes. and that's and i'm i'm wondering if you have you know you've thought about this a lot i i love the web of meaning i i highly recommend it i was telling jeremy before we started that my husband has decided he thinks it's his bible um <laughs> which i think is so great um but um, do you have, have, have you have any thoughts on how we can get back? I think because this is some, maybe something we've, we've lost in some way along the way or are losing to this sense of relatedness with the rest of life. Like, mm. do you have any, I mean, you've explored so many ideas, but do you have any recommendations for, for increasing our sense of, relatedness and and therefore our sense of meaning for for people who are in busy lives who have to work in yeah. little boxes and things like that right exactly <laughs> Um, and it's um, and when you have uh, busy lives impinging on you, it's so hard to find the time. but I do think one of the most important things we can do is begin with um, some version of mindfulness, some version of carving some time out to let things settle, to be more um, reflective. And if you do have a meditation practice, that's definitely one of the best ways to begin. And really, um, when in that meditation practice, what is so valuable is to get in touch with, just like we were describing earlier, that sense of our own animate consciousness um, or animate intelligence and this realization of that it's not just that um, I want to be more connected with life, but I am life. And um, once we begin to sort of start to, in fact, this was a, a hugely um, like meaningful leap for me some years back as I was doing this research. Once I began to understand that actually I am not just the, I'm not some sort of end product of billion years of evolution. I'm an ongoing process in those billions of years of evolution. I'm sort of part of life unfolding. And once we begin to realize that's the case, it's as though connecting with our own animate consciousness then allows us to see our shared animate being 
with all the rest of sentience. We begin to realize that when we see um, another animal in pain or distress, um, that that's the same kind of pain or distress that we feel. It's not being um, anthropomorphic in some way that's wrong to actually say, oh, we have a shared experience. And as you go to a deeper layer, we can even get that with plants around us. We can feel that we all are part of this unfolding of life, that we are all, um, actually deeply connected and they're all our cousins evolutionarily you know we all came from the same original life source and we're all part of working together in this symbiosis so going internally in that regard and going to as much as much as possible going to some uh less uh, I, I don't want to say going into nature because my whole point is we are nature, but going to <laughs> a part of nature that has been less uh, turned into cities or developed by mm-hmm. human activity. And doing that kind of was sometimes called forest bathing. So you, mm-hmm. you go for a walk in nature and you don't just sort of go as a time to get 20 minutes off just so you can let your mind wander and, and before you know it, you're sort of back again. Um, but actually open yourself up to what's going around on around you to feel into that symbiosis I was talking about earlier, to realize that there's all these sentience around you, basically spirits of life that's doing its thing that you are part of and realizing that even the trees as you walk by them are kind of aware of you, even though they might not um, they might not show it in some way that we can understand. Actually, they are aware of your sort of presence. And that kind of connectedness allows us to begin to see that we're part of something so much bigger than ourselves. I appreciate that advice so much. And I, I take it to heart. And sometimes that connect, that sense of connectedness for me anyway, leads to profound sadness because it's so good because the harm we're doing, but I can't, you know, I'm not going to turn away from that because of that sadness, I guess. Yeah, Hunter, I'm really glad you raised that because that is something, it's something that I've experienced so many times. And it's something that's really important to surface because um, once we realize, like in the words of this uh, great um, 20th century humanitarian, Albert Schweitzer, he said, I am life that wills to live in the midst of life that wills to live. And it's this profound understanding. But once we realize that, we realize, well, hell, life is under attack by our civilization. And it is, it's it's being um, destroyed actively by what our civilization is doing. And in fact, what is one of the more difficult parts of the book, um, for me difficult in just writing it, is this realization that all the beauty of life that we see around us, when you're in that forest or wherever it is, is basically like maybe 10% of the abundance of what was once there. That all of the nature itself is kind of a, 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 a sad sort of ruin, basically, of what it once was. And that's really, really hard to take in. And a lot of the time, I feel we can only take it in by um, sharing it with others. We can't hold that sort of burden mm-hmm. ourselves. But I do feel that in this world, the way it is right now, with this Um, devastation taking place and increasing, that we have to hold that enough so we can then turn it towards engagement. We have to be really careful not to let it sink us down into this sense of despair or a sense of like, oh my God, the enormity is more than I can handle. But what life wants from us is to feel its own suffering enough 
to then say, you know, I've got, um, if I, for those of us who are in a more privileged place, who have mm-hmm. some time and ability to actually choose where we put some of our intention and to say, I can do something about that. And then we realize that when we actually shift towards engagement, we can actually hold the pain more easily because we realize that, yes, we're doing something for life. Mm. I think that's such a beautiful way to end this conversation. I I would love to just like Mm -hmm. talk about this so much longer with you. It's really fascinating. Uh Um, Jeremy Lent's book is called The Web of Meaning. Um, Is there anything before we go that we we miss that we didn't touch on and and also how can people reach out to you and and, and learn more um, about what you're doing oh sure yeah well um uh, you, you can you can find my anything more about my work by just going to my website which is at um jeremylent.com and actually um if you're interested in really sort of being part of um more like being part of that change, that kind of transformation that we need for our our civilization. I've actually um, just um, been kicking off a new online network, actually speaking about um, meaning being a function of connectedness, as a way for us to be connected all around the world online. Um, And it's a network called the Deep Transformation Network. And if you just go to um, deeptransformation.network, so not just dot .dot, but dot .network, um, you'll actually um, be able to see the network and you can join for free. It's no, there's nothing, no cost to it. But the idea is to allow people to begin to connect with each other and share all these different ideas like we've been talking about with each other in a global community for change around the world. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Mindful Mama podcast. I really, mm. really appreciate your writing, your thoughtfulness, your research. I appreciate what you're putting out into the world. And, and um, mm. it's really touched me deeply. And I'm, I'm mm. so appreciative of what you've done. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Hunter, for, uh, for inviting me. And really, just please pass my thanks on to your husband. for uh, it's, I'm so glad to hear how he's been resonating with the book. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to the Mindful Mama podcast. I hope this episode has made you think, made you feel in the way that it has for me. And if you love this episode, please do me a favor, share on your Instagram stories and tag me in it at Mindful Mama Mentor and let me know what your takeaways are. I can't wait to connect with you again next week. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your time and attention with me and watering these good seeds in the world. Thank you so much. I will talk to you soon. Have a great week. Namaste. I say definitely do it. It's really helpful. It will change your relationship with your kids for the better. It will help you communicate better. And just, I'd say communicate better as a person, as a wife, as a spouse. It's been really a positive influence in our lives. So definitely do it. I'd say definitely do it. It's so worth it. The money really is inconsequential when you get so much benefit from being a better parent to your children and feeling like you're connecting more with them and not feeling like you're yelling all the time or you're like, why isn't things working? I would say definitely do it. It's so, so worth it. It'll change you. No matter what age someone's child is, it's a great opportunity for personal growth and it's a great investment in someone's family. I'm very thankful I have this 
you can continue in your old habits that aren't working or you can learn some new tools and gain some perspective to shift everything in your parenting. Are you frustrated by parenting? Do you listen to the experts and try all the tips and strategies, but you're just not seeing the results that you want? Or are you lost as to where to start? Does it all seem so overwhelming with too much to learn? Are you yearning for a community of people who get it, who also don't want to threaten and punish to create cooperation? Hi, I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and if you answered yes to any of these questions, I want you to seriously consider the Mindful Parenting membership. You'll be joining hundreds of members who have discovered the path of mindful parenting and now have confidence and clarity in their parenting. This isn't just another parenting class. This is an opportunity to really discover your unique, lasting relationship, not only with your children, but with yourself. It will translate into lasting, connected relationships, not only with your children, but your partner too. Let me change your life. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com to add your name to the waitlist, so you will be the first to be notified when I open the membership for enrollment. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. mindfulparentingcourse.com I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. <laughs> well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.